0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles if you have one to John chapter 5. We return to our study of John after a pause to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Last week, we had a guest speaker. So we're returning there. And because we're returning and we're working through one large unit, we're going to read a larger chunk than what I'm going to cover this morning. I remind you in John chapter 5, I argue Jesus instigates a conflict, he chooses a man. One man, notoriously known to be lame, on the Sabbath, gives him instructions to pick up his mat, knowing that will create conflict, shows up to him again so that the man can identify him all to set up the conflict and to enable him to speak and, and declare the critical truths that he declares. So I'd like to begin by starting in verse 16, and we'll read the rest of the chapter. John 5, 16, through the rest of the chapter. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of man." Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works the father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me. The father has sent me and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent Do not seek the glory that comes from only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of your Son, You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts, that you would take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring all of us to the knowledge that you have sent your son into this world and that he speaks your very words, that we might have life, that we would hear his voice now and not only then, we would hear his voice now and live and have life and escape judgment. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I'll remind you where we've been and where we're going. Um, we will, at the end of this, have spent five weeks on John chapter five, which isn't bad. That's close to 10 verses a week. Um, if it seems like it's going slowly, I assure you, I think we're flying. And in, in week one, we considered the miracle and how it was a setup for this, this conflict and then this discourse. And then we looked at Jesus' statements of what it means that he is one with the Father. They understand him rightly. He is claiming deity. He's, look at verse 18, calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They understood that. This is the charge they're gonna put above him on the cross. This is the charge that's gonna drive him to the cross, a charge of blasphemy that he claims equality with God. And Jesus then explains and clarifies and the first part of the discourse from verses 19 to 30 which is what we looked at over the last two weeks here jesus explains on the one hand he does mean full equality with god he makes audacious claims that he has the power given to him by his father to give life to whom he chooses. Look at verse 20 and 21. For the father loves the son and shows him that all himself that he is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you will marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is claiming resurrection life giving power. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Not only does the son have the power to give life and raise the dead where he chooses, all judgment has been given to him, all judgment. Then in verse 23, all honor is due to him. The Father has done this, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. This is the God who is jealous and will give his glory to no other. The Father himself desires, intends for the Son to receive as much honor, as much glory as himself. So on the one hand, Jesus insists, yes, you've understood me rightly. I do mean full equality with God. And yet... He also insists he does nothing but what he sees the father do. He is completely subservient and submissive to his father. In fact, if you look at his claims, he claims he does nothing but what he sees the father do. He says this twice in verse 19. The son can do nothing, literally from himself, but only what he sees the father doing. Verse 30, he says it again. I can do nothing on my own. There's nothing original. There's nothing original. There's nothing authentically Jesus in what he's doing. Rather, it's everything that he sees his father doing, he is reflecting and doing. Every word from his mouth, every action he takes. In fact, this becomes the basis for his declaration to Thomas and the other disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The rationale is this. The father, in his act of love to the son, look at verse 20, shows him all that he himself is doing. The son has a... Full, complete, and total revelation of the Father made to him. We have much of the Father revealed to us in this word, but not all. There are plenty of things we don't know about God. What was he doing before creation? Why did he do this? Why did he allow World War II? There's all sorts of things the Father has not revealed about himself. We have riches of revelation, but there's tremendous amounts of information we don't have. Not so with the Son. The Son has seen all that the Father does... And then the son does all plus or minus nothing of what he sees. Therefore, the son is the perfect image and representation of God the father. That's the rationale. He is in lockstep with the father. Yes, he is fully God. Yes, he is equal with the father. And yet he is not in competition to him. He's not a rival God. Rather, Jesus insists, and he insists here, it is the father's very purpose to send him. He's not some upstart. The father wants all to honor the son. This is the father's plan, the father's mission that he sent the son on. And that's this declaration. Well, those are some wildly large claims. Imagine someone walked in here this morning and said, I just want to let you know, all judgment at the end of time and space is mine. I want to let you know that by the power of my voice, I will raise every dead person who has ever lived from the grave. I want to let you know that God the Father intends for me to receive just as much glory and honor as he does. These are staggering claims. And Jesus does not expect us to take these claims simply on his say-so. He he makes this point clear. This morning's message is titled The Manifold Witness to the Deity of Christ. And that word in the ESV translated either as witness or testimony, there's, there's one Greek word group, Marturo behind it you can guess the word we get from that martyr either the act of bearing witness or giving testimony the one who gives witness or testimony or the testimony that, that they give it's used in all senses in this text shows up 11 times in this passage it's clearly one of the emphases Um, So if you look in verse 31, if I alone bear witness, there it is, about myself, my testimony, there it is, again, is not true. There's another who bears witness, there it is, about me, and I know that the testimony, there it is, that he bears, there it is, about me is true. Eleven times the emphasis. So in the English, we either say witness or give testimony or bear witness or testify. Those words are all representing one Greek word group family behind the text, which is what is being emphasized here. The other emphasis is true. You see at the end of verse 31, my testimony is not true if I bear witness only about myself. Verse 32 at the end, he knows that the witness born by another is true. And verse 33, you sent to John and he is born witness to the truth. So the emphasis in this passage is the manifold, the many witnesses, testimonies to Jesus and that they are true. Jesus is laying out the warrant or the basis by which the Jews he's speaking to and John's purpose in writing that we as well would conclude Jesus' claims are true. Jesus has insisted life and death, heaven and hell hang in the balance about what you make of his claims. These are not small matters. What you think about what Jesus says about himself, your eternal destiny weighs in the balance. And so it is critical that we conclude based on this testimony rightly. So I'm not sure how far we're to get this morning. Um, We're starting in verse 31, but between this morning and next week, God willing, we'll finish this chapter. Jesus is doing two things here as he moves through this text. He's laying out a multitude of witnesses. Despite the grandeur of his claims, despite the greatness of them, he is going to insist he has more than enough witness. In fact, he has some testimony he doesn't even need. It's just gravy testimony. And eventually, he's going around the corner to condemning the Jews in Jerusalem in light of the witness, in light of the wealth of testimony and evidence. They have a share of guilt for not believing in him. That's what Jesus is saying. So the first half is more dominated by the witness, even though there's still notes of the judgment. And the second half of this text, starting probably in verses um, 39 and following, have more of the weight of judgment, although they show up in 37 and 38 as well. And witness is not absent, but we'll start working through it. The manifold witness to the deity of Christ. Point number one, verses 31 and 32 we see the plurality of testimony required. The plurality of testimony required. And again, understand Jesus here to these Jews that he is speaking to in Jerusalem knows he's made great claims. And so he, he confesses, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's easy to say these things. It's easy to make these claims. It's much harder to back them up And Jesus recognizes that. He's not setting these guys up for failure. He's going to point to multiple lines of testimony. So the blank here, Jesus alone cannot testify about himself. And in saying this, he is merely confessing what the Old Testament law says plainly. Turn to Deuteronomy 19. Uh, Much of our Western legal code comes from principles found in Deuteronomy. We heard about oxes that gore last week. Here's another principle from the law. Um, important principle that holds through the Old Testament, holds through into the church. Uh, our version of it would be you need to establish through multiple lines of testimony beyond a reasonable doubt. Here's, here's the, um, the way the book of Deuteronomy expresses it. Verse 15 of chapter 9. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties through the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall inquire diligently. So in charges being made, matters that, that have weight and import, Things hang in the balance. I mean, either Jesus is a blasphemer and a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are your options. Good teachers don't say things like this. And so we need a plurality of evidence. And Jesus freely recognizes this, He's, he's agreeing with the law that it is good. And he, he then lets them know, yes, I don't expect you to take my word on this only, but there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. There is another, here's your blank, who is testifying about him. It's a present tense. The, the testimony is ongoing. And we gotta ask ourselves, who is Jesus speaking of? Who is this another? Now, the, the simplest answer might seem to be John the Baptist, because we go to John the Baptist next. I don't think that's correct. Um, I think you'll see the other, and here's your blank, is none other, that Jesus speaks of none other than God the Father. None other than God the Father. Which fits with what he's been saying. His whole insistence up until this point is... It's the Father's purpose and plan. It's the Father who's revealed himself to the Son. It's the Father who's given him work to do. It's the Father who has sent him. It's the Father who is speaking in his words. It's the Father with whom he is in lockstep. It's the Father who intends for all to glorify his Son, and so therefore it makes sense that it is the Father who ultimately validates, establishes the witness to the Son. That's what Jesus, I believe, is saying. I think will become clear. You you could structure what Jesus is about to say in the second half of chapter five along maybe seeing five or six lines of evidence. You could say it's the Father, it's John the Baptist, it's Jesus' works, it's the scripture, it's Moses, it's John's gospel. But really, I almost would view it as one witness, the Father who is testifying in a number of ways. The Father is the one bearing witness to the Son. And Jesus, as he has already said about his unity, with the Father, that he's in lockstep with the Father, he knows that his testimony is true. Jesus isn't under any doubt. He's confident in who he is. He's confident in his relationship with the Father, and he is confident of his Father's testimony. So that's the opening point. Jesus freely admits, don't expect you to take my word on it alone. If I'm the only one saying this, you shouldn't, in fact, accept what I'm saying. But there is another. Oh, and I'm quite confident he is speaking the truth about me. So then we turn to the proven testimony of John the Baptist, the proven testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 33 to 35, you sent to John and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, Jesus is making um, a shrewd point here. And this helps, I think, explain part of why John has related some of the details in his gospel to us that he has. If you remember, turn back to chapter 1. I, when we were here, I, I commented on the fact that whereas the other gospels emphasize John's baptizing ministry, such that we refer to him as John the Baptist, is probably his most well-known moniker. I'll sometimes call him Dunking John, but it doesn't have the ring to it. In John's gospel, really, he, if you were just going by John's gospel, he'd John the witness, John the testifier, or John the martyr. Look at, uh, look at pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 1. This is the testimony. There is your word. This is the witness of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, there it is again, and did not deny, but confessed, third time, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why... Are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I'm baptized with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, now we begin to see some of the significance of why John relates this event. Look at at the, the way he expresses this. Verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who is Jesus speaking to? Jesus is speaking to, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Where is he? Five, one. After this, there's a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem talking to the Jews. Jews in Jerusalem sent the delegation to interrogate John the Baptist. Jesus reminds them of this now. There's some overlap. This may not be the exact group of people who sent them, but there's enough overlap between these Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Jerusalem who sent the delegation that Jesus can say, you sent to John the Baptist. He's reminding them of what they did. A formal envoy, making sure his paperwork and his baptizing permits were in order. And you'll remember, they they neither condemned nor celebrated John, but they certainly permitted him to continue. And it was publicly done. John had most of Israel going out to him, they say later in the, in the book. And so it would be known that these officials sent an official envoy to ask questions of John. He was, he was interrogated. He, they got a deposition, if you will, from him. And, and the Greek has an extra tense in the past. They've got more tenses than we do. And there's a tense which emphasizes the ongoing consequence of a past activity. The the best way I can express it to you is the perfect verb tense is uh, if if you're showing up to an exam and someone says, how do you feel about it? And I said, well, I've, I've studied the emphasis primarily is on my current preparedness for this exam. Yes, I'm drawing your attention to sometime in the past I studied, but the real emphasis is I'm currently prepared for the exam because I studied. Or if you were to go into some place with a sickness or a disease, but you say, don't worry, I've been inoculated. Again, the, the idea is the current effect of the past completed action. This is the same tense Jesus cries, um, it is finished from the cross. Well, Jesus says, in effect, you yourselves, and he uses the tense, have Sent to John. You are in the state of having sent to John. The consequences of that sending to John are what are being emphasized. They themselves had investigated John, and then the same tense is used for what he says about John, and John had given true and established testimony, and that's really the idea. John gave testimony, but that testimony is still ringing. That testimony was not challenged. They didn't condemn John. It wasn't the Jews in Jerusalem who arrested them at Herod because John had preached that it wasn't lawful for him to take his brother's wife. No, the Jews in Jerusalem had sent a delegation to John and they did not censure him. They did not limit him. They permitted him, and this is publicly known. And we've been seen in John's gospel. What exactly did John the Baptist say? Did he equivocate? Was he clear or unclear? No, he was perfectly clear. He testified again and again and again and again and again. And John highlights this. The fact that John the Baptist gave unerring, univocal testimony without any ambiguity, without any stuttering, without any vacillating is what's being pointed out here. God raised up a prophet. The prophet was interrogated and questioned by the religious leaders. He stood that questioning, and his testimony continues. That's the gist of what Jesus is pointing out. In fact, the fact that Jesus puts John's testimony in the past tense suggests he's already been arrested or possibly even beheaded at this point. So he, he brings that up to them. You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So John had given established testimony. Now, then Jesus adds, John's testimony, though, is ultimately unnecessary. Jesus credibility to his claims does not depend on John the Baptist. It's remarkable. There's an abundance of of evidence, Jesus is saying. He doesn't need John's testimony. This is similar to what John, I believe the gospel writer, says at the end of chapter 3. Turn back to the end of chapter 3. The last time John shows up speaking in our text, when his disciples question him about why Jesus is, is eclipsing him, and he speaks of his great joy in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. We read this, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. That's John. John speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. Now, the reason why I say that I think the Father is seemed to be the one making all this testimony is how is John introduced in John's gospel? John the Baptist, I mean. He's introduced this way. If you turn back to chapter one, verse six. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. So ultimately, who sends John the Baptist to testify? The Father. So whose testimony is it truly? It's the Father's testimony. The Father has seen to it to send a prophet to testify. So even in John's witness, we see the Father establishing witness for the Son. I think this is how we're to understand all of what comes, is the various ways the Father is witnessing and testifying to Jesus Jesus doesn't need John's testimony. His claim does not rely upon the testimony of man, but he cites this that they might be saved. And this is an important thing to to remember. Even as Jesus is gonna say some stinging things to them, you don't don't know the Father. You don't have his word abiding in you. You don't believe Moses. That, That has got a sting to religious Jews in Jerusalem. He's not saying this to condemn them ultimately, although I believe it will condemn them. He's saying this, that they might be saved. Sometimes when people are so firmly established in their unbelief and their hardness of heart, a a stinging rebuke is what is required to wake them up. Jesus is saying these things, that they might be saved. He's Look, you guys went out to John. You heard what he said. You, You know he said the same thing over and over again. And you didn't shut him down. You didn't stop him. In fact, he says, you rejoiced for a while in his light. What's, what's he implying? You, you guys are culpable. You know. You know. You don't feign ignorance. You know. John came to give light to the truth, point D. John came to give light to the truth. Here's how Jesus summarizes John's ministry in verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Here he's almost certainly um, referencing Psalm 132.17, which I'll just read to you. It's a messianic psalm or a psalm with heavy messianic emphasis. And he writes, therefore I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Messiah is coming and there'll be a light. And we see this too with spotlights. When someone important comes out on the stage, you put a big spotlight on him. Well, John the Baptist is that one holding that spotlight. I mean, no more clearly than in John chapter one where he points to him and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John's ministry. just pointing to Jesus. Point, there he is. There he is. There he is. Just as scripture foretold, God raised up a prophet to bear bright and shining light to the truth, to Jesus. And what condemns these Jews in Jerusalem, they had for a time rejoiced in that light and that message. Oh, they heard Messiah's coming. I'm sure they got excited. Now we know what they expected the Messiah to do, what they thought he would do. He'd pat him on the back. He'd say, good job, guys. I'll take it from here. Let's go take on the Romans or something like that. But for a while, the excitement, Messiah is almost here. man they got excited apparently in that light they certainly didn't stop john censure him in any way and so jesus is clearly implying "You, you guys aren't innocent in your unbelief you guys know you know you sent to john you heard what he said he gave established testimony and you rejoiced for a while in his message but you're not rejoicing in it now are you and it's not because of legitimate innocent ignorance Proven testimony of John the Baptist, they are culpable. That word for rejoicing is also a very strong term. Only the time it's used in John's gospel is in John 8, where Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Oh, they apparently rejoiced greatly for a time in John the Baptist's ministry. So now we turn to the powerful testimony of Jesus' works, the powerful testimony of Jesus' works, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Um, So, note first that their testimony is greater than that of John. And that's because this is a testimony that's straight from heaven. Jesus works his miracles, his ministry, they come straight from heaven. Jesus will point to his works on many an occasion in the gospel. Let me just give you a couple examples. He, he says, believe, if you don't believe me, believe my works in John ten thirty two, which I have shown you many good works from the father, for which of them do you stone me? And then in 37 to 38, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe my works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. So these works were given to him by his father to complete. And Jesus and John turn to seventeen briefly. In John seventeen, Jesus is praying before his arrest, mock trial, and crucifixion. And we, he says this, John seventeen. that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. These are works the Father gave him to do. And that's what he says here as well. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works the Father has given me to complete, to accomplish the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what are these works? I got three blanks here, and if you can fit it in, His works would be, firstly, I think his miracles, his miracles. Why do I say that? Because in some sense, John's gospel is a book of miracles, a book of signs. When John writes at the end of his gospel, why he wrote, you remember this, or hopefully you remember this. He writes now, many other, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's, John's in one sense, you could summarize the entire gospel of John as as a book of signs handpicked by John. And we remember after he turned the water into wine at the end of chapter 2, middle of chapter 2, verse 11, this the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the miracles that Jesus is doing, the signs that Jesus is doing, are clear evidences from, that the Father has sent him. This is what Nicodemus confesses. We know you're from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God has sent him. So rightly understood, the miraculous power that Jesus utilizes is divine validation, authorization, and witness to his credibility, But it's more than just the miracles, it's also his ministry. Turn to chapter four. I'd say in many respects, it's all that Jesus is doing and saying. Now, certainly with an emphasis on the miraculous. But when Jesus witnesses to the woman at the well, the lowliest of the lowly, the Samaritan woman shacked up with her boyfriend, the disciples come back and they are agog. They're confused. What what on earth is going on? Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to town. The people said, come see a man. And she said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ They went out from the town were coming to him? Meanwhile, his disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So apparently evangelizing and bringing to faith the Samaritan woman is part of the work the Father has given him. That makes sense. And when Jesus is praying in the garden, I've completed the work you gave me to do. He's not just saying I did the dozen or so miracles you want me to do. Everything that Jesus is doing. And again, this, this links back to what he's said to the Jews in Jerusalem. He only does what he sees the Father doing. And the Father apparently wants Jesus to come and speak and act and reveal him. And all of that is Jesus' work. So Jesus' miracles, Jesus' ministry, and ultimately Jesus' death. These are the works the Father has given him to do that testify to who he is. And so consider, as we read this, not just Jesus' miracles, but his kindness, his humility, his his authority, his boldness, his courage, as you read through these Gospels, do you not conclude like the temple guard, no one ever spoke like this, man? They, they, they authenticate Jesus. And so many people who come to faith in Christ do so not because of a clever reasoned argument, but reading the text of God's word, they, they become enthralled and compelled by the Jesus revealed. This is the Son of God. They see his works, they see his words, they see his actions, they see his deeds, and they find that witness and testimony compelling. And Jesus points to his works, his miracles, his ministry. Now, they don't know this yet, but we do, his death. Because, of course, this account is operating at two levels. There's the event, Jesus talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. But John, in his gospel, years later, is telling us about this event in a book that has a clear apologetic purpose. He wants us to believe. So there's what Jesus is saying to them, and there's what John intends for us to get, watching, reading 2,000 years later, we know the cross is coming. We know it's looming. They all testify to Jesus' deity. They testify to Jesus' deity, the very works. And he's been talking about his father's works even in this passage. Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. In some sense, he's sizing up, healing the man by the pool as part of the father's works. In verse 20, he says, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him. So when Jesus talks about the works his father's given him to do, it's, it's everything he's doing. It's certainly his miracles included, but not limited to them. And so if you're here today studying, trying to figure out what we make of Jesus, look at Jesus, look at, speech, look at his speech, look at his conduct, look at his actions. Jesus is saying these things are how the father testifies, one of the avenues of testimony that the father makes concerning him. He says, um, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Here's your point three. They testify that he has been sent by the Father, which is an interesting emphasis. Jesus is very emphatic and makes this point that he is sent by the Father repeatedly. I got a whole sheet here of references, and this isn't exhaustive, of the times Jesus insists this is a critical point. I was talking to Pastor Daniel this morning, why, why this emphasis that Jesus is sent by the Father. Well, I think because in it, two, two truths he's been hammering away in this chapter are made clear. One, if he's sent from the Father, from the throne room of heaven, it establishes his greatness, his grandeur. But if you also understood him to be sent, it understands his submission, his, his alignment with the will of the Father. He's not some upstart who sent himself self-appointed prophet and apostle. No, he was sent. So you see in this one phrase, being sent from the Father, his greatness and his submission to the Father. He, he speaks about this a number of ways. I'll just read you a couple of the passages. Um, J- Jesus is so emphatic in understanding that, that his Father sent him and us coming to believe that. We saw in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 6.38 I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John six fifty seven. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. John seven sixteen to seventeen. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. John 728 29 Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. John 7, Jesus said, I'll be with you a little while longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. That's just some of the references in the next two chapters of John's gospel. This, this emphasis, understand Jesus is saying, I, I am the one sent from the father's side. I'm the one commissioned by the father. And that gives sanction and credence to what Jesus says. So when he says, I am the father or one, the father sent him, wants him to say that. When Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, Father sent him to say this. And on and on and on. The powerful testimony of Jesus' works. Let's briefly dive into point four. Um, we're not going to get fully through these verses. We'll pick up in 37 and 38 next week, but I want to just make one or two quick points from here. The personal testimony of God the Father, the personal testimony of God the Father. Jesus has already brought the Father into this in the, in the point about the works, as he's identified them, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, and that the fact that the works themselves bear witness that the Father has sent me, but now he isolates the Father personally. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness. That emphasis in English, himself is backed up in the Greek, is emphatic. The Father himself And I think the idea here is, in many other ways, we can see the Father bearing witness, but it's indirectly, through intermediaries, he sends John. He gives Jesus works to do. But there's at least one sense where the Father has himself, without intermediary, given testimony to Jesus. God the Father has testified to Jesus. The first plank, audibly, audibly. In all four Gospels, there are accounts of God the Father speaking from heaven, audibly, Testifying to his son. Um, the other Gospels have it at his baptism. It's coming in John's Gospel. So, G- so Jesus may well be referencing his baptism, which, is, which was witnessed by many people. But turn over to John 12. I'll show you the account of it in, um, in John's Gospel, John 12. So the Father, God the Father, has testified to Jesus by sending John, the Baptist. God the Father has testified to Jesus by giving and authorizing and powerful works to do, ministry to do, words to speak. And the Father himself has audibly and verbally given witness to his son. John 12, 28. Well, let's start in 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The Father himself has borne witness to Jesus. On a number of occasions, I give you the references in the the outline to where in all the other gospels. So in all four gospels, also at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on top of the mountain, the voice from heaven speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So on multiple occasions, God the Father has himself verbally, audibly given witness to Jesus. And then secondarily, we understand here through John through his works and in his word. If you turn back to John 5, um, now here Jesus introduces the lines of rebuke, and I don't have time now to unpack all three of them. I want to just draw a conclusion from them, and we'll start next week by looking at them in detail, because he has three specific rebukes to them His voice you have never heard, His form, you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. And so here's your your final blank yet. They do not know the father and therefore they do not believe in Jesus. Jesus insists their ignorance of the father and their ignorance of his word is the reason they're ignorant of him. I mean, you think of Orthodox Jews today, and you wonder, do they worship the same God? Do they have faith in the same? Look look at Jesus' statement. No. You do not have his word abiding in you. How can you say that? These are people who, in all likelihood, had memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament. I mean, they're, they're a wanna of Bible verse you know they'd have like given our medals and stuff from awards tonight, they'd just be like having bling out to here because of the verses they had these are people who who memorize scripture at a degree far beyond what most of us do how, how can jesus say you don't have his word abiding in you well it's obvious because they don't Receive the one who God has sent. It's the same voice talking. This, again, gets back to the logic of what Jesus has insisted upon. Every move Jesus makes, every word out of his mouth is nothing but a perfect reflection of the Father. Therefore, you cannot distinguish your response to Jesus from your response to God the Father. You can't say, I don't like him, but I do like him. You can't say, I don't like Jesus, but I like Genesis. Can't do it. Same person talking. Same voice. Same testimony and witness. And so Jesus is going to round the corner of their guilt and their culpability. Yes, he wants them to be saved. So even this stinging rebuke is done with a redemptive purpose. Maybe some of these guys might come to their senses. The slap, so to speak, will wake them up. Look, you sent to John. You know what he said. You rejoiced for a while in his witness. But you don't have God's word in you because you don't believe in me. They do not know the Father and therefore they do not believe in Jesus. Jesus insists their ignorance of the Father and his word is the basis for their ignorance and refusal to worship him. And so I just want to bring this to a close by pointing out to you that, yes, there is ample abundant, more than abundant witness to Jesus. And yes, it is appropriate for us to examine and to um, evaluate Jesus himself insists in John 7, 16 to 17, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my own authority. And so there is a legitimate appraisal. There's a legitimate sizing up that's righteous and good and healthy. But there's also a guilty sizing up where you know perfectly well. And you're buying time and buying yourself wiggle room and well, who knows? And Jesus condemns that. And he will condemn that. Let's read to you how he what he just blasts them in John 5. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Anybody who claims to hold to the Old Testament and doesn't believe Jesus doesn't believe the Old Testament. It's what Jesus is saying. It's just stinging, striking claims. So as we close, we won't be singing our closing song this morning. I would just challenge you to, to, if you are one who has come to the belief that Jesus is sent by the Father, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, be confident. God has amply, sufficiently, abundantly, and with gravy on top testified to the identity of his Son. Through his works, through his word, audibly, through the miracles, through John the Baptist and the prophets, we, we have a, wealth of evidence and if you're here today not sure you make a jesus by all means investigate righteously legitimately but but also recognize also there comes a point where you know and then jesus has some sharper things to say as well we, we, we dare not tarry um so let's close in order of prayer lord god you have sent your son into this world you have declared that he is both christ and king that he is um, David's son and David's Lord. He is our great king. He is our savior. He himself bore in his body on the cross our sins, and by his stripes are we healed. Lord God, I pray that you would give all of us in this room a, a confidence in this truth, that we would not vacillate, but that we would see and recognize your voice, your image your glory in your son and in his activity as he speaks and acts in this gospel that we might behold the glory of Christ that we might surrender and bow our knee now rather than later that we might hear his voice and live now rather than hear his voice and be judged later I pray this in Jesus name amen